I want to begin today by way of just a brief introduction uh, by answering a few frequently asked questions about the subject matter of our new sermon series here at Trinity over the next uh, many several months. Three questions, really, number one, what exactly are the pastoral epistles? Secondly, what are these letters really about? And thirdly, what or why do they matter? Why do these letters ultimately matter? Listen, seven years ago, when I first sat down in my office just down that hallway behind you, there was no binder containing special guidelines for a God-honoring ministry laying there open on my desk. As I settled into my new office, I didn't come across any promising pamphlets promoting seven trusted steps to pastoral success in your first seven years. Boy, would that been nice, both for you and for me. I didn't discover buried deep in my office closet, and I do mean buried. You don't even want to dare to open my office closet these days. I didn't discover a secret set of helpfully detailed blueprints for building a successful church staff and ministry. Listen, nobody had even left me so much as a sticky note with the Wi-Fi password to the church when I first came, or a letter with a list of new disciples, uh, new believers to disciple or even a confidential burn file containing the problems that needed to be ironed out in my first hundred days as the new senior pastor. I was, in a sense, all on my own. Or was I? You know what I did have as I sat down March the 1st, 2016, to be your pastor? I had this book right here. I had the Bible. And also had Paul's divinely inspired first century instruction manual for ministry called the Pastoral Epistles. The books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are not only Paul's last canonical letters, written very likely between the years 62, 63 AD, and 67 AD, we believe, but they are also among Paul's most intimate and personal of letters. They're called the the pastoral epistles in part because they focus on the character and the conduct and even the concerns of those who teach and lead God's family, to pastors, to elders, to deacons. You see, unlike most of Paul's earlier letters, which were largely written to entire or whole churches, the pastoral epistles were written specifically to two of Paul's closest friends, Timothy and Titus. And then through these important second-generation Christian leaders, they were handed down generations to men like me and elders that you have been blessed with. Now, there are two key places in particular, one in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and one in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul, I think, very clearly captures the overarching theme and aim of what we now call the pastoral letters. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and verse 21 says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says something similar. And remember, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are the bookends of the pastoral letters. 
He says in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think you know what the theme of the pastoral letters is now. It is guard the deposit of the gospel. Listen, imagine being one of the guys who has to follow the mighty apostle Paul in local church leadership. No, thank you. No, thank you. Listen, you never want to be the guy who follows the guy in local church leadership. That's sort of what I found out here at Trinity with Pastor Allen. But listen, such as was the case with young Timothy and with Titus, for the better part of two decades, these two able, aspiring young Christians were mentored and then mobilized by the Apostle Paul himself. At the end, or after the end of the book of Acts, and after Paul is released from Roman uh, imprisonment, Paul evidently continued his mission of preaching Jesus and carrying Christ's name where it was not yet known. Romans 15 verse 20 tells us that. At some point, however, Paul decided to drop Titus off in, on that island of Crete where, with careful instructions to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town per the apostles' directions. Timothy, likewise, was then deposited by Paul as the the wet-behind-the-ears pastor in the strategically significant city of ancient Ephesus, with the unenviable task, mind you, of standing up to certain false teachers and combating false doctrine, harmful ideologies that were creeping in and beginning to devour the church. Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus with one big mission on the brain, preach the word. Preach Christ. Timothy, remind them of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Listen, as we read through the pastoral epistles, we are reminded of what the local church is to be and what we are to do. This is Church Life 101. These letters are the mentor's manual for local Christian ministry. Prayer. The public reading of scripture, instructions on proper decorum in public worship, spiritual qualifications for ministry leaders called elders and pastors, even issues on how to handle practical concerns like caring for widows and confronting divisive personalities within the church, the importance of good works and godly living, and yes, sound doctrine, as boring as that sounds to some. Each of these topics and then some flow out of an elder churchman's pastoral heart straight through his pen onto parchment for two of his prized protégés in the ministry, men by the name of Titus and Timothy. In response to the last frequently asked question, namely, why do they matter? Let me remind you that we, without any doubt, are living in a world that was perfectly described by Paul in the pastoral letters themselves. I take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, where Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, 
slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, Timothy, avoid such people. Does that sound particularly relevant or timely or appropriate to any of us? Yes, it does. Listen, to this point, the famous French reformer of the 16th century, John Calvin, said of the pastoral letters as a whole, these books, in his 16th century context, he said this, these books are highly relevant for our times. That was Calvin in his context. Oh, how far we've stooped since then. Listen, we live in a day when godliness, interestingly enough, that word godliness is going to show up nine times in the book of 1 Timothy alone, when godliness is ridiculed and under attack. It may have one time, at one time, been cool to be godly, but it is no longer cool to be godly. And that's okay. Our culture constantly clamors, you mean to say that you actually believe that that book is from God? Have you ever heard that? When people say, you know, you don't really take Paul at his word when he's writing about issues of human sexuality or conditions of gender roles within the church. I mean, that was just for that time. It doesn't really matter for this time, does it? Have we had these conversations? Have you heard this before? It's very, very relevant. Get with the times, people want to say today. No, I think I'm quite okay standing with this time in God's Word. Progressive Christians want to relegate the pastoral epistles to the ancient past. They don't want to submit to what God has said and what God has declared. Church, we live at a time and in a culture, particularly where the good deposit once entrusted to Timothy and Titus and then passed on to faithful leaders and lay people alike regarding purity of life and purity of doctrine is eroding at an exceedingly alarming rate. Where words like the inspiration of the Bible or the inerrancy of the scriptures, or the sufficiency of God's trustworthy and reliable word, not to mention the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, are being questioned on nearly every corner, revised and removed at every turn. And so we need to come back to the pastoral letters and and hear Paul's passionate plea, pushing back against the worldly waves And calling us as today's disciples to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. It's not just good enough for Timothy. It's good enough for you and for me. So why do the pastoral epistles really matter? And why are we going to spend these days ahead in them? Well, let me give you five good reasons as I close the introduction before we come to the passage this morning. Number one, the pastoral epistles give us specific instructions breathed out by God himself on issues of spiritual leadership and church order. God has told you, O man, how to do church. And we get in all sorts of hot water and knot ourselves up into pretzels whenever we play fast and footloose with the Word of God and think we know better than the Word of God on how to do church. So it's important for us to go back. The Bible doesn't say everything. It doesn't tell us when to have church. It doesn't tell us uh, what programs to do per se, but it does tell us a lot about how we are to be and to do 
church life. So we'll see that in the pastorals. Secondly, the pastoral epistles remind us that though pastoral ministry, what I and Pastor Jerry and others are called into, is important, every believer, every believer is also set apart for ministry in the church. You might say, well, these letters are written to pastors, to Timothy and Titus. Why do we need to hear about it, Pastor Dan? Well, it's because this is his church and all of us are ministers and members, in a sense, of it. So Paul was writing to Timothy, and Paul was writing to Titus, but he was really writing through them for the church. And so we all need to step up and hear. Thirdly, the pastoral epistles clarify what the local church ought to be about and to do as God's gathered people. And again, uh, Paul is very specific. He talks about prayer quite a bit in these letters. He talks about discipleship what you've heard and seen and and believed from me, Timothy, pass on to others who will then train others. Discipleship there, preaching, preach the word and and don't, uh, don't forsake the public reading of scriptures. All of these are specific instructions that ought to be seen in the life of Trinity Bible Fellowship Church. And the moment that we stop to ebb away from these things that we see in the pastoral letters, you should call my office and say, Pastor, we need to talk. Elders, we need to talk because we're not doing things biblically. Again, not everything that is appropriate to do as a local church is spelled out specifically in the Bible. That's foolish. This is a a trans-temporal, trans-cultural book, but the, the basis of it, the heartbeat of it is certainly there. Fourth, the pastoral epistles, very importantly, awaken us to the reality of false doctrine and to the threat of false teachers. They're not maybe are gonna show up, but they certainly will show up. And this call to God's servants, particularly pastors and elders, to guard the good deposit of the gospel in their own day. Just, and I'm not encouraging you to do this, but just turn on TBN. Turn on some of these uh, podcasts or radio stations or or television stations and and just listen to the, the heresy come across the airwaves. There is false teaching rampant in the world today. And so Paul is saying, prepare, sharpen your theological mind, and care for the church by combating false doctrine. Fifth and last, Paul says in the pastoral epistles, he shows how simple, I love this, how simple and how central the life of Jesus Christ is for the church. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational for our formation and activity as a church. Jesus Christ shows up big in the pastoral epistles, and I love that. It's all about Jesus, folks. If you're at a church and it's not about Jesus, you're at the wrong church. It's his church. Paul says in Romans, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Paul never grew weary of preaching that old, old story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of my good friends passed away this past week, Pastor Dan Allen. Many of you may remember Dan. He was an interim, uh, not an interim, but he filled the pulpit, and really Dan filled the pulpit, big man, uh, when he was here years ago. A dear friend of mine, I actually preached his son Josh's funeral when Josh was killed in a head-on accident some 10 years ago. Dan just died of leukemia uh, just like a week and a half ago. 
But I thought of Dan this week because he would often write, almost weekly, particularly before he got really, really sick, a weekly email that he titled, Memo, a memo to my ministerial sons. And I was privileged to be one such son. In that email, a memo, he would raise issues, he would impart wisdom, and he would spark up conversation. Well, the pastoral epistles are Paul's memo to his ministerial sons. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. Well, with these helpful words of background in mind, I, I trust, I think we're ready to jump in to the letter of 1 Timothy. So here's the next big question. Why did we start in chapter 3? <laughs> Why are we starting in the middle of 1 Timothy? Well, when I was little, maybe seven or eight years old, I remember going to a friend's birthday party where hot dogs were being served at the party. By the way, who serves hot dogs at a kid's indoor birthday party? Maybe that's standard. That's pizza. That's pizza territory. But anyway, hot dogs were being served, and I remember sitting across the table from me was some strange little kid who I hardly think I knew, but some 35 years later, I've never forgotten. I remember him to this day for one peculiar reason. He ate his hot dogs by starting right in the middle of the hot dog. Now, most of us, I think we pick an end, but he went right for the middle. I remember that and, and thinking, yeah, that's weird. That's a little messy. Gets the job done, though. <laughs> Probably tastes just as good in the end. Well, it turns out, years later, now I'm that weird kid starting the meal of our current sermon series right in the middle of a book. It's going to feel a little strange. It might get a little bit messy, but I'll tell you what, it's going to get the job done, and you'll see in just a moment why. The reality of the matter is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 are, in fact, not only the middle, but they are the hinge of 1 Timothy. One pastor called it the seam, the hinge it actually contains for us the key verse, I believe, not perhaps just of 1 Timothy, but all to the pastoral letters, the purpose statement and Paul's aim that he's going to really develop throughout the letter of 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm writing, in, writing to you in order that you may know, you, Timothy, may know and relate to the church how folk ought to behave in the household of God. Timothy, I'm writing for the church to know how they ought to behave in the household of God. 1 Timothy is all about God's spiritual house rules for holiness in the local church. Let me give you an outline for today's message, and then we'll keep steamrolling ahead. Under the first heading I would submit from verse 14, we find the reason for Paul's correspondence to young Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon but I am writing these things down so that if I delay, you may know something. So we have a sense of the reason behind Paul's writing or his correspondence. Secondly, in verse 15, we have the rationale for God's church or God's church community. Verse 15 says that you may know if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What we'll see there are three beautiful descriptions of the church gathered in just a moment. But then finally in verse 16, the third heading this morning, Paul's going to wrap up the first half, really, of 1 Timothy, chapter, 1 Timothy 
with the second of three really strategic hymns uh, celebrating the kingship of Jesus Christ. One is found in verse 17 of chapter 1. You can note that. One is found here in chapter 3, verse 16. And then one is found in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Those three uh, short statements about Jesus' royalty or his kingdom help to organize the letter of 1 Timothy. But here we have finally the third heading, a reminder of the centrality of Jesus Christ in the church. We have a reason for Paul's writing. We have a rationale for the church. And we have a reminder about the Lord Jesus Christ here in the middle of 1 Timothy. The heart of the pastoral epistles, listen friends, is none other than the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything about us is all about Him. It's all about Him. We exist because Christ reigns. And that's part of the theme of the pastoral letters. Uh, A one-sentence summary or sermon would be this that the letter of 1 Timothy is written for us to know how we ought to behave in the church and who we ought to believe in, namely our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a summary for today's message. So first, again, from verse 14, we have the reason behind Paul's correspondence. According, and I've already said this or alluded to it at least, according to Romans chapter 15, Paul made it his life ambition to preach Jesus where Jesus' name was not known. Romans 15 verse 20 says, to preach the gospel where where Christ has already been named, lest, to not preach the gospel where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul was a preeminent apostle. Paul spent his final years and his last energy speeding towards Spain with the good news of God's grace in and through the person of Christ. Evidently, somewhere along Paul's mission, troubling news reached his ears about the church and the condition of the church all the way back in Ephesus. Remember the significance of Ephesus to Paul. Paul had spent three precious, formative years of his life pouring into the treasured believers there in the city of Ephesus, building up the church. Less than five to seven years later now, The church in Ephesus is teetering on the brink of spiritual disaster. And so Paul is faced with a choice. And he decides to make a pit stop and deposits his spiritual son, Timothy, his protege in the gospel ministry, right in the heart of this important city in order to guard the deposit in Ephesus. That's the background behind the letter. We see Paul moving quickly towards Macedonia and then on intending to go westward to Spain while Timothy is left there in Ephesus. Titus is also deposited in Crete for a similar purpose. They are to shepherd the church and hold down the fort until Paul's able to return. So what's the big deal? I mean, really, what's at stake? What possibly could go wrong with false teachers around? Well, look. As Paul intended to push west, Timothy and his crisis back east provided the perfect opportunity for Paul to stop and write out this incredible letter that has now been received by generations of pastors to prepare us to lead the church well. In his recent book, The Loveliest Place, 
Subtitled The Beauty and Glory of the Church, Pastor Dustin Benge tells uh, a really gripping story. It's actually a Dutch uh, legend, a chapter entitled The Pillar and Buttress of the Truth, this story about a youngster named Hans Brinker. Maybe you know this story. The story is about a little Dutch boy who saves his country from catastrophic flooding by plugging his finger into a leaking dike. When the boy recognizes the imminent danger of a potentially broken dike and the destruction that will occur if a small trickle of water is allowed to slowly break into a more considerable inundation, he flies into action. Benj writes, quick as a flash, he saw his duty. Throwing away his flowers, the boy clambered up the heights until he reached the hold. His chubby little finger was thrust in. Almost before he knew it, the flowing was stopped. Close quote. Well, similarly, Paul had placed Timothy's timid and quivering little finger in the city of Ephesus to plug the dike, holding back the torrent of false teaching from utterly devastating the church in Ephesus. Would Timothy step up? Would he hold on? Would Paul make it back in time to rescue the church? Or would the trickle of false teaching become a flood of debase and debauchery living there in the body of Christ in Ephesus? That's what's at stake when we let a little false teaching in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, as I've already mentioned to you, contains Paul's central purpose for the entire letter. A Greek scholar by the name of Bill Mounts explains that verses 14 to 16 of 1 Timothy 3 is actually the heart of the entire Pauline or pastoral corpus. It puts all of Paul's specific instructions into proper relief and perspective. Now, when I was little, growing up in the church, like many of you, I remember being given a strict set of ground rules for proper behavior, behavior in God's household. And based upon my recollection of the frequent trips to the church restroom, being dragged there by my mother, I understand that I was a rather slow learner. Rules like this, no running, no climbing on the pews, no sleeping during the sermon, no wearing hats or shorts inside the church. Now, I suppose it's an open question, beloved, as to whether or not we need to consider the merits of such restrictive or maybe negatively couched rules for behavior in God's house today. Perhaps today's generation of parents, of which unfortunately I have to admit that I'm now on the older end of such that generation, maybe parents today are a bit too permissive and accepting of playful, often even irreverent behavior in the church. Frankly, if I'm being honest, I am a bit of a centrist when it comes to such behavior. I think we need to be gracious with our little ones. Uh, they need to feel welcome, to feel like this is the place where God delights to hear them squeal with joy. But there's a limit <laughs> as well, right? I think the heart of the matter ought to be a matter of the heart and not just simple rule following, for sure. However, even though we want our little ones to truly enjoy coming to church, there is still, properly speaking, a sense of reverence and respect and awe that ought to be found in the halls and the sanctuary of God's house. There are rules and expectations and a sense of proper decorum and behavior in God's house, and that much is for sure. But make no mistake, 
I don't think Paul had for a moment on his mind rules like no running in the church or no wearing hats in the building. He might have been thinking about no sleeping during the sermon. I'm pretty sure about that one. That was on his mind. But the other one's not so much how to behave in the household of God. You see, Paul's greater concern was a serious concern for godliness in the church. Not just behavior modification, but for godliness in the church. What does it look like to be godly in God's house? As I mentioned earlier, that word godliness is found nine times in the book of 1 Timothy alone. It's, it comes from a Greek word named, or a Greek word Eusebia, which interestingly is where we get the name Eusebius. And maybe for some of you that have uh, studied a little bit about our BFC history, Eusebius Hershey was the very first Bible Fellowship Church missionary. In the mid-1860s, yes, 1860s, uh, Eusebius Hershey, at the age of 64, left Pennsylvania for Liberia, Africa, to serve in full-time missions, our first BFC missionary. And his name, I believe, comes from the Greek godliness. What a name. What a name. Well, Paul's point is that personal piety or godliness, though it involves the outer man, it involves how we behave, that is perceptibly how one is behaving, it actually begins as a matter of the heart. It begins by what we believe in. Godliness originates in right belief and inevitably results in right behavior. That's part of what Paul is going to describe here. Now, I want you to notice the three pictures just quickly here that Paul gives concerning the church in verse 15. We read here again, I'm writing these things down for you, Timothy, that if I delay you, and the the you there is singular, Paul really is speaking to Timothy and through Timothy to the church, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Three key descriptions are squeezed into this one verse. First, The church, you and I, are God's household. God's household. God gathers a family by the preaching of the gospel. God doesn't gather wood and brick and plaster to build a building. He gathers a body through the preaching of the gospel. There's a lot of stuff that we do as a church, but preaching the word and praising God with the word and discipling one another in the word should take preeminence. Should take preeminence. The word house, interestingly enough, or household, is the Greek word oikos. It is found four times in 1 Timothy chapter 3 alone. Just alone in this chapter, it's found eight times in the pastoral letters. Elders, for instance, and we'll hear more about eldership next Sunday when we install our newest elder here in our church. Elders must be spiritually mature men who, quote, manage their own households well. It's the same word. Why is that uh, to be the case? Because if someone doesn't know how to manage their house, how will they care for God's house? You see the point. Deacons, likewise, Paul writes, should be the husband of one woman, managing their children and their own households well. In many ways, the home is to be a proving ground for leadership in the church. The point is that the church, not the building, but the body, you and I, flesh and blood, we are God's household. Pastor Chuck Swindoll comments, when a young man married in the ancient Near East, his father would expand the family home to prepare separate quarters for the new couple to live in. Everyone contributed to meet the needs of the extended family's household, taking the orders from the patriarch. And that's the image that we have. 
We see new bedrooms popping up in God's family because new disciples are believing in repentance and faith. God is building a spiritual family through the word of the gospel. And Christ, no pastor, no elder, but Christ alone is the spiritual head and leader of this church. Secondly, we notice also in verse 15 that the church is called God's temple. That is God's dwelling place. Now, the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word that we, many of us know, the word ecclesia. It's where we get our word church. And it was used to describe an assembly or a gathering of citizens convened for a specific purpose or cause. That purpose, of course, for the church, both in Paul's day and in ours, reminds us to live and, and worship and conduct ourselves with rightly ordered obedience and worship of King Jesus. We are God's dwelling place, not just any dwelling place. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, and I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." We heard in our last book study in the book of Ephesians from Ephesians 2.22 how Paul said, In Christ you, Jew and Gentile, are also being built together into a dwelling place. It's the same word, for God by His Spirit. So listen, if we are the dwelling place of a high and holy God, then how ought we to live and conduct ourselves but with godliness and holiness? We are to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. What we believe and what we do matters immensely because of who we belong to and what He has declared. And third, the church is also called here by Paul a pillar and buttress. Some translations render that foundation of the truth. Many of you will recall that on April the 15th, 2019, the world was riveted by images of the famous Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris as it burned and eventually collapsed in on itself. Dustin Binge, in his book again, says, quote, the cathedral's spire snapped in two like a twig just before the sun set over the city of lights, crashing some 314 feet into the nave through the ceiling that the skilled artisans had carved by hand in the Middle Ages using 5,000 oak trees. Now, that's in in the quote there. 28 flying buttresses, though, if you remember this scene, remarkably withstood the stress and the heat of that incident and were the only reason why the entire structure was not totally destroyed. I think it's been rebuilt at this point. Well, back in Ephesus, in Paul's time, there was a different temple. That is the temple of Artemis or Diana that loom large over the city of Ephesus. That pagan temple boasted 127 massive columns or pillars, soaring some 60 feet high into the air, supporting an enormous structure. Chuck Chuck Swindoll notes that the the roof or the ceiling of the temple of Diana was 60% larger than an NFL football field. Huge. In contrast to that pagan temple, which Paul most assuredly had in mind when he says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, we read these words from mighty Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, 
a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills, ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The last stanza of that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Who are we, church? Why are we to be concerned about behaving rightly in God's house? The answer is we are God's spiritual dwelling place. Do you remember that when you roll into the parking lot on Sundays? Do you remember what we're about to do? Who we really are as the body of Jesus Christ and the temple of the living God? That should make us perk up. That should make our ethic stand up. It should change the way that we treat each other in the household of God. We are to be filled with his awesome presence and his awesome power. And we are charged with living according to and upholding the truth of the gospel of his mighty grace, both in and through Jesus Christ and in and through his church. It's interesting to me as we close that here after telling Timothy to hang on and after reminding his readers who they are and as God's spiritual house, his dwelling place, the pillar and uh, buttress of the truth, notice that Paul ends the first half of First Timothy by directing us not to a program, by not directing us to a policy document in the church, not by directing us to a particular pastoral figure, even Paul himself, but rather Paul directs our gaze to a person who is Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Paul says over in Ephesians 4, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 3.16. You want to know how to behave in the household of God? Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness that we confess, Paul says. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. In other words, the foundation upon which the pillar and buttress is built is Jesus Christ and the truth of of who he is alone. We are going to come back to verse 16 at a later message and consider it on its own terms in a single sermon. But today I simply want to point out to you that what Paul points to as the reality of true godliness, that it has everything to do with the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Not just our behavior, not just what we do and how we behave as a church, but it has everything to do about what we believe in a person, in Jesus Christ. Everything about us, I said it earlier, is all about him. 
Charles Spurgeon wonderfully said that holiness is not the way to Christ. Instead, Christ is the way to holiness. We get that backwards. We could sub out the word holiness for godliness in that very quote. That godliness is not the way to get Christ, but rather Christ is the way to be godly. What's the most important feature of our faith in God's spiritual family? The answer is fidelity and faithfulness to the truth of Jesus. Cling to Him. When false teachers or worldly influencers try to pull you or allure you away from Christ, hang on to Jesus. He's hanging on to you. Hang on to Him. It's not a polity that is a form of government that unites us as a church. It's not the fact that we're Bible Fellowship Church that unites us. It's not a particular practice or form of worship, a, a certain liturgy that unites us as a church. It's not even a set of human personalities or uh, church history figures, or we are of Luther and Calvin and others. No, it's not any of that. Rather, it's a fully divine, fully human person who unites us as a church. Faith in His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His proclamation, His return, that's what unites us as a church. It's that and that alone. Our piety centers upon our confession of the person of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of misbehaving believers in the world today. They might actually have really good practices, but they have really bad theology. Or others might have really good theology, but they're really, really behaving quite poorly. We are called to be the kind of church that believes rightly and then lives out of that belief. That everything that we do is in conformity with who we belong to. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is very likely an early church hymn. Maybe Paul wrote it, we don't really know. Certainly it seems to be a creed, it's in a creedal form. And again, we're going to come back to it, but the, the point here is that it encapsulates the doctrine of the church, the heart of the church. And notice, it's not about us. It's not about if we preach expositional sermons or not, or if we sing contemporary music or, or, or hymns. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. It's all about Christ. It shows us that true godliness in God's house is found in believing uncompromisingly the truth of the gospel in Christ. The godliness and true holiness has been, has been revealed to the world in the person of Jesus and in the people who belong to Jesus. Philip Jensen said, as I close, here then is the Christian's confession of Christ. This is the great secret of our religion, our piety, and our godliness. For this is how we know God and how we relate to Him. It is by His Son's victorious resurrection which has been proclaimed to us and in which we have our faith. What a privilege. What an absolute privilege it is to be counted as part of the body of Christ. That's how I want to end today's message. Not necessarily with a call to response to believe the gospel, though if you don't believe the gospel yet, we certainly call you to respond. But for you who belong to the church, do you delight in the fact that God has found you and brought you into his family? Praise God for such a blessing. And then consider how we live in light of that position and how we behave in the household of the living God. Let's bow in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you.
for this delicious meal, even if we started in the middle. Father, thank you for all that your word has revealed to us this morning and all that you desire to reveal to us in days and weeks to come. Lord, help us today to really revel in this great and honored position that we enjoy, being sons and daughters of the living and reigning Jesus. Lord, help us to consider the condition of this house. Are we clean? Are we holding tight to our confession? Are we bringing you the worthy worship that you deserve? Lord, help us to take inventory, to take account of the condition of this house. We would never want you, Lord. We would never want you, Lord, to leave. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take this word and apply it to each of our hearts in just the way that the Spirit alone can do. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.